Kia ora koutou. welcome to Te Hiringawaka Victoria University Wellington, the podcast. My name is Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor and I teach science communication in the Centre for Science and Society here at Te Hiringawaka. I'm also an ecologist and your host of this sustainability-focused podcast. Today I'll be talking to two scholars, Ellen Carline and Tessa Thompson from the School of Biological Sciences about biodiversity in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Ellen Carline is currently completing her Master of Science in Ecological Restoration. She's researching a novel radio tracking technology in a wetland ecosystem tracking invasive mammals. And she's currently the project lead for the Aorangi Monitoring Project, a long-term biodiversity monitoring project in South Wairarapa. Tessa Thompson affiliates to Ngāti Raukawe ki te taonga in Ngāti Tū Korehi. Tessa is completing her Master's of Science in Marine Biology, researching the Toheroa, a taonga shellfish, and is passionate about mataranga Māori and how it can guide us in protecting our ocean. Kia ora Tessa, what's special about Toheroa and what's impacted them, especially along that Horofenua coastline where you're working? They're pretty big shellfish. It's like a massive pipi or tuatua. They're only found in Northland, the Horofenua and Southland. Yeah, they were really key to our hapu. We were kind of known for them. When people would come to our marae, you know, we'd serve tohiroa fritters or soup and they were a massive part of our hapu's way of life really. And then they opened canneries, so they commercially fished in tohiroa and then they were overfished and also some management and regulations were put in place that more so um, I'm coming to find in my research (laughs) potentially protected the fishery more than you know the species itself and the, the health of the species. Quite a few factors combined and now we're starting to think that on the Horofenua it's quite an isolated population and so because there's no adults there they can't reproduce so there's no new um, tohidoa coming in. It's been pretty incredible getting to know a species that I, I mean my granddad doesn't remember there ever not being any and I've never seen a live one. Yeah it sounds really empowering to be able to pursue an issue that's relevant to your hapu but also to have seen that quick turnaround in between your grandpa and you. Ellen can you tell us a bit more about what the your research is looking into in terms of this novel radio tracking technology? Radio tracking for animals has historically been done manually so you're out there with this weird spiky antenna running around in the bush or on a boat um, and you've got headphones on and you're listening to the little beeps from the bands that you've put on whatever you're studying And that takes hours and hours. And you can only get data when you're out there. But my technology, I've got this massive system and I've set up like nodes all through the wetland. And I've got this big sensor station with a solar panel and I feel very much like an engineer, not like an ecologist sometimes. And my system will automatically collect data 24-7 from my animals. So I'll band them and then they'll be consistently running around and it's, it's going to get so much data. Uh, I sound like a complete nerd saying that, but it's really going to open up radio tracking globally. And with this sort of technology, we can then scale it up to like country size. I think in North America, they're applying it to migrating birds. So they've got like a few stations in Canada, all the way down to the bottom of Argentina, and they can track these birds. And we could do that like with our birds, like, I'm thinking about it for bittern, the matuku in wetlands. They move massive distances, and if we could get a station in every wetland, we could collect so much data on what they're doing and you know, really work out how to protect them in better ways. 
So there'll still need to be a manual step of catching some birds and popping radio trackers, but once they're out there, you don't need the person going around with the spiky things. Yeah, exactly. I can be sitting at my computer at home and seeing where they are, which will be fantastic. I'm applying it to pest mammals first. For a master's student, they're much easier to work with. And I'll be looking at rats, ship rats in particular. And pest mammals haven't really been studied in wetlands at all. So I'll be able to work out where the rats are moving, if they're interacting with other species possibly. And then we can target pest control to their movements so it can be way more efficient. And do you think that this might help with some of our predator-free 2050 goals in terms of needing to know where they are to be able to target pest control? Yeah, yeah. If you don't know in depth about an animal's ecology, how, how do you think you're going to target them for anything? You need to know, like, know their enemy. Tessa, I'll come back to you. In what way is your research connecting with I guess, some of these wider sustainability issues around our oceans? Part of my thesis looks at what happened historically. It's been quite eye-opening for me to see what maybe wasn't done so well in terms of um, species management. And something I hope to emphasise throughout my research is the importance of consulting with local communities, um, particularly Māori, those people that have quite a direct understanding and relationship with a species and I think that can be for any fishery species in in Aotearoa. Yeah I just think it's showing me what not to do and how we can improve um, species management in Aotearoa for generations to come to ensure that you know this doesn't happen to more resources than the tohiroa. I see some links here that we can use technology to try and figure out where species are now but we can also think about knowledge communities have about where things have been historically to see what's happened. Ellen, thinking about some of your work in the Aorangi Ranges, can you tell us a bit about what the biodiversity issues are in these areas? Um, yeah, so I work in the Aorangi Ranges in the southern Wairarapa and also in the Rimutaka Ranges. The Rimutaka Ranges are our control sites and oh, where to start with the biodiversity issues? We monitor pretty much all biodiversity from invertebrates to pest mammals to native birds uh, to bats and we're just monitoring their population changes across um, 1080 drops so it's been going for 12 years and we've, we can definitely see the changes in populations um, over that time period. Uh, there are incredible numbers of pest species in our bush and you you go out there and you'll see how quiet it is. When it shouldn't be quiet, it should be extremely loud. You shouldn't be able to hear yourself think there's so many birds. And in some places in Aotearoa, you go and you can still hear that. But in the Aorangis, it's definitely not. On the biodiversity front, it's also interesting because we've got a lot of ungulates, so pigs and deer in the bush as well. And it is a recreation reserve. So management-wise, it's interesting seeing the hunters and conservation coming together to have a similar goal of restoring the forest ecosystem while keeping it a hunting reserve. You mentioned that across this period there's been several 1080 drops to control these invasive mammals. What effects have been seen following these operations? 
Yeah, so this is one of the longest running Tinaidi studies in Aotearoa. It's an incredibly valuable data set and out there everyone should know about it. So after every drop, we see an immediately and a drastic decrease in rat numbers and most pest species numbers, but rats are really a key indicator species. So they go right down to almost zero. We'll get a few, but very low. And then within six months, they're back to normal levels, around 80 to 100% at some sites. And it will change in a mast year. Um, we'll have 100% in mast year sometimes. So their populations bounce back incredibly quickly. Yeah. What happens in a mast year to cause those numbers to jump back up? A mast year is when our trees have a very heavy fruit and seeds. They're producing so much. And historically, mast years would have been you know, a time of plenty and it would, be, would have been so gorgeous being in the bush then. But now we kind of dread mast years because the rats and the stoats will feed and gorge themselves and then their numbers will skyrocket, which means a decrease in all of our native biodiversity. So we often have a big pest control push right before a mast year to try and get the numbers as low as possible. We are the country that uses the most 1080 in the world, and there's a reason for that. It is one of the most controversial issues we have in Aotearoa, and I think we need to be engaging all communities, not just the scientific community. We use lots of other vertebrate toxic agents as well, like Britificum, but 1080 is dropped from helicopters across large-scale areas. I wish we didn't have to use it, and I think most terrestrial ecologists will agree. I wish we didn't have to, but it's really our best tool in the fight to save our um, Tangwa species. Tessa, what would you say are some of the major challenges for Aotearoa in terms of our marine environment? For me, I see food accessibility and um, looking after our kaimoana as a, as a challenge, a big challenge. Coming from a tohiroa perspective, I don't want that to happen to any other kaimoana species. I think it's really important that our whanau and all of Aotearoa, we rely quite heavily on protein from kaimoana and I think it's really important that we ensure for generations to come that, that there is accessibility and, and also the, the quality and the health of the kaimoana as well. You look at, for example, in, within the climate change sphere, rising sea temperatures and that can displace um, kaimoana species the water's too hot for some species to survive so that's a massive challenge and I know as we move into the future there's lots of work around aquaculture and how we can kind of potentially even farm some species and ensure that they have the correct conditions and and the suitable habitat for them to grow in but yeah I think that's a massive challenge just mainly around ensuring our kaimoana is there for generations to come. And yeah, all our taonga species as well that hold importance to Māori. How do you think Mātauranga Māori might contribute to Aotearoa-specific responses to some of these challenges? Yeah, I think it links back to what we were talking about before, about going to communities and discussing with them what they understand about certain ecosystems and how species interact. When I think of the past, I think... Wow, our response to taking care of species may have been extremely different if fisheries had gone 
and spoken to local Māori. You know, when the tohiroa was declining and when everyone was like, oh, what do we do? You know, don't take them if they're too small, which is in, in fisheries um, regulations now across a range of species. Only take enough for yourself and your whānau and to share. Those sorts of things, I think, can really help us. It's about having that reciprocal relationship with the ocean. You know, what we give to the ocean, how we take care um, of the moana is really what we're going to benefit. The kai moana and the quality of that kai moana is going to be based on how we look after the ocean as well. Would you like to see more researchers considering or incorporating mātauranga Māori when they're looking at these wider issues? Even researchers going into communities, yeah, yeah, definitely. Even just acknowledging who the mana whenua of the area are, going and having a all with them, talking to them about what they see the issues are, how they see the issues, but also doing that in a respectful way as to not take their knowledge as their own. Ellen, what about you? Do you see a role for mātauranga Māori in contributing to restoration, protection of our biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. As a Pākehā researcher, the first thing you should do is go to mana whenua and talk to them and ask them if it's okay for you to do your research on their land um, because we have to remember we're always on Māori land. I believe that ecological research in Aotearoa should be driven by Mataranga Māori. Historically and globally, Western science hasn't seen the value in traditional ecosystem knowledge. And that is an utter mistake. So much time wasted, so much disrespect. And we need to learn from that and we need to do better. And Pākehā researchers need to do better, definitely. Ellen, going back to your Aorangi project, a few years ago your team had some pretty exciting news from your monitoring work. Can you tell us more? Oh yeah, we found bats. Bats hold a very special place in my heart, Pika Pika. They are our only land mammals, our only endemic land mammals. They are gorgeous and so special. And bird of the year, we have short tail and long tail bats. So in the Wairarapa, I've been fortunate enough to work with a very small volunteer group. We go around monitoring bats and they're just popping up everywhere. Long tail bats, not short tail bats. It's been really rewarding and seeing the reaction from the community is so great. I was in some random stream two hours from the nearest house and this guy comes marching around the corner and he goes, are you that bat girl? I was like, oh yeah, I guess I am. And he pulled out his iPad and showed me videos of bats he'd got on his trail camera. And we were then able to put some recorders out, confirm it, and he's uh, found a roost tree, which is phenomenal. And now we can band that tree so it's safe and we can do extra trapping around it. Our bats are so under-researched. I would love to work with them some more, um, but we were the team to discover them in the Aorangi Ranges, and that was so exciting, yeah. What do you hope our listeners take away from this discussion, or how might they be able to contribute to improving and protecting our biodiversity? Tessa? Oh, I hope, especially early career researchers, take away the importance of talking to Māori and also understanding the value, um, as Ellen touched on, 
and it's really cool to hear Alan talk about it. You know, I can come in here as a Māori and say, talk to Māori, it's really important. But to hear a Pākehā researcher say it and understand and see the value in Mātauranga Māori is pretty special. It's incredibly important. And moving forward in order to protect our biodiversity in Aotearoa, it's going to rely heavily on Mātauranga Māori and, as we are talking about, communicating with communities and mana whenua. What about you, Ellen? I would like the listeners to know that it's not hopeless. It does seem pretty grim sometimes, and our research shows that it's not great a lot of the time, but there's definitely still hope, and science and ecology needs your voice. And it doesn't matter who you are, everyone is valued. Yeah, we need diverse voices in ecology and in conservation in Aotearoa. What makes you feel hopeful or optimistic about our capacity or our motivation to address some of these issues affecting our native biodiversity? Well, when you see the kind of community spirit after Predator-Free 2050 was announced, I know that gets a lot of criticism from ecologists, but there's something nice about a big dream and a whole country rallying together and all kind of becoming like bloodthirsty killers in a way, which to the rest of the world must seem so odd. But to us, it's kind of like a, we're in it together, we can all do it. And seeing kids get out there and being able to recognise birds all through Wellington, now that they're migrating out of Zealandia Eco Sanctuary, primary school kids know what a kaka looks like or sounds like. And yeah, that gives me a lot of hope. We might when they have more communities finding their own bats in their, their neighbourhood. Tessa, what about you? Anything that makes you hopeful or optimistic? Yeah, what makes me hopeful, um, even just through my research, I've been able to connect back home, which is incredible for me, being able to go home and spend lots of time at the beach where my tupuna settled and grew a hapu. So that's been really incredible. But while I've been there, the people that are passionate, and I think it's very similar as to what Alan was saying between the marine environment and the terrestrial environment. People in Aotearoa care and they want to look after our taiao and our moana. I think that's what makes me hopeful. Communities that care are setting up their own little projects to protect species. It's so nice chatting with a marine student because so often terrestrial and marine are kept separate but they're intrinsically linked like what affects the ocean affects the land and vice versa. I was just about to say that I don't think of my study as just in the water. I think of all the things that surround the tohiroa, including humans, including the farming that's gone on behind the beach on the terrestrial environment. And so it's really cool to talk about it as a whole and to talk about a taiao as a whole because that's really what we should be looking at it as well. Thank you, Ellen and Tessa, for your time and for sharing with us some of your ongoing work and important contributions toward protecting and sustaining our native biodiversity. Namahi. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.